Hey, this is Kevin Shinnick, writer of Star Wars Force Collector, some Spider-Man comics, some Batman and Flash comics, just a, a lover of pop culture. And you are listening to Genuine Chit Chat. Hello, my friends, and welcome to another episode of Genuine Chit Chat. This week, I'm joined by my friend Matt for another in-person conversation. So myself and Matt recorded the other day for about three and a half hours, so that's going to be split between three podcasts. So this is the first one, which is like an introduction to Matt, his time living in Australia, why he moved to the UK, and some trips along the way, including a hippie commune, immigration, and we also talk about cultural differences and creepy crawlies, basically spiders and snakes. And then next week is going to be part two, which I'm releasing as a separate episode number, because although it is technically part two of the same conversation, it is its own thing. We don't really reference the first part of the conversation, and we talk primarily about Matt's three-month-long hike in the USA, as well as his new business, Bust Builders. So I'm going to release those two in the subsequent weeks, and then the third part is going to be released a few weeks later. I'm going to have a little break from Matt, have one or two conversations with other people, and then we'll go back to Matt. And that conversation in the horizon is going to be about Elon Musk. I've got that recorded, it's in the bag, but I just didn't want to release three weeks' worth of Matt's conversations. There will be a video version of this conversation released on YouTube, hopefully within a day or so of this releasing on the normal feed. But in addition to that, if you support me on Patreon, you'll get instant access to the second part of this conversation right now. So please consider doing that. I put details in the description for my Patreon and coffee as well. So please consider contributing to the show if you feel like it deserves it. But I'm going to stop waffling here at the start, friends. Make sure you check out all the details in the description, and I'll be back at the end to give you a little bit more information on what's to come. Welcome to Genuine Chit Chat, where we have honest conversations with interesting people. And I'm your host, Mike Burton. It also kind of feels like there's a filter over your um, camera. It does. It's, it's called being not a very good camera. That's the, that's the filter. It's like when you have a cheap microphone. It sounds like everyone's talking like this. <laughs> so, yeah. It's not, it's not the best, but what's good about it is that because it's not that HD, when I speak to people over Zoom and stuff, it's just... It's quite good quality uh, because it's actually not great quality, but because the the size of the video files is so much lower than a HD camera, my internet connection is better. Nice. So it's not such a drain. Um, although my internet's fine now, but that is a random little. That's a. I think it's called a, a soft intro. I think it's called with podcasting, where you just press record and go straight into it. Um, so I am here today uh, with my friend Matt, um, and we've got a new kind of mini series that we're testing out if Matt passes this and this this is the pilot if Matt does well enough then we'll go on to uh, other ones but it's going to be called um, Hot Takes and one of the reasons for that is because although Matt and I are friends and we've been friends through work for about a year now year and a half yeah yeah because of that we disagree politically on almost everything like to to in the more specific details of things, the general ideas we have of how society should be in general ways is largely the same. We want people to be happy, you know, all that kind of stuff, freedom. But, like, the ways we go about thinking those things is uh, different. And so I always have interesting conversations with you. And you're educated with your views, whereas I just kind of float through lots of different ones. So before we get into any of those, we, we've got one planned for a little bit later, uh, Elon Musk. Um, but before we delve into that, I want to know who you are. I mean, I know who you are for the audience uh, to know and um, probably when hearing you say more than a full sentence they'll maybe notice that your accent does not match mine yeah. so how do you identify how do I identify who are yes. you who are um, you so I'm from Australia um, grew up in Australia western suburbs outside of the city um, till I was about 18, 19 mm. um, then started to get a job in the city <laughs> spent two or three years in the city and then decided I wanted to do some travelling um Went to America, uh, did a hike um, that was about 1,200 miles over three months, which was quite cool. A three-month hike. Yeah. Um, that was, there's some stories there, there that's are. for sure. I've heard a couple of them. I've heard a couple. <laughs> um, yeah, so that was a lot of fun. Went with a best mate, which was cool. Um, yeah, how else... What am I trying to say here? When did you get to the, cause of the commune part? Like, I've got anchor points of your <laughs> life, of like where you've lived and what you've done. The highlights, yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, basically, so Australia, it, till about 18, did some traveling. Thailand was my first overseas trip. Mm. Did three days there. Um, America was three months. That was the hiking. And then after the hiking, um, I, I hitchhiked from Vancouver all the way down to Georgia and then Florida and then flew from Florida to Switzerland, and that was the uh, hippie commune yeah. or the uh, the Sufi camp, which was. Um, <laughs> How long were you there for? Uh, three months. Another, as well. another three months. Yeah, considerable amount of time. 
Two very like very different things of uh, one is hiking, which is pure purpose driven, going in that one direction, and then a commune kind of thing, which is well, I keep calling it a commune to pull your leg, but that kind of thing, which is like everything is all around us and sufficient. It's kind of two very opposite ways of living in nature. In air quotes, definitely. Um, Yeah, the commune was definitely an eye opener. (laughs) Um, It was a camp. People I'm not used to being around. Yeah. Um, When I went there, it was when. So Cody, my mate, introduced me to. The idea of spending the time in Switzerland. Um, Switzerland's a good place to go. It's super expensive. So he sold it to me as free accommodation. Um, you get physical labor, so you're doing something, which is good. And then you get free time. Mm-hmm. And so you can go do your traveling. So I'm like, yeah, sure, I'm in. Um, and then when I got there, so I was very like, um, turned my nose up to the whole like, you know, Gaia and the different spirits and like free love and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, it's just kind of like, when am I ever going to get this experience again in my life? When am I going to have the opportunity, um, regardless of my thoughts and opinions? Yeah. Let's, let's go for it. Let's see what happens. Yeah. Did um, you originally plan to go there for three months? Originally, no. Um, that was very like, uh, Cody was very methodical in his plan and <laughs> bringing me to his side to end up spending that time. Um, but yeah, no, was, I'm very grateful for him for introducing me to it because it was quite cool. And out of all the people there, at least 50% of them I'm still in contact with today. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's kind of like a global community, which is quite cool. Cause then you end up with ties to different countries everywhere. And then when you go travel, you have people to see things to do. Yeah. Um, and just also it gives you like access to the rest of the world, which is quite nice. Yeah. Well, that's what you want, isn't it? It's, uh, cause whenever I've gone traveling, you, you want to experience cultures, new experiences, and a lot to meet the people, you know, even if it's just a, you know, an Italian baker, you know, you go to like their patisserie and just see some of their things and, you know, anything like that, just any kind of people that have different experiences. Like Megan is obviously very well traveled. So she's got people dotted all over the, the globe as well. And from podcasting, which is literally the opposite of traveling, um, I've got quite a few friends from across the globe as well. And it's just, it's one of the reasons I want to talk to you as well, because you're from a club the globe you from us to you is one of the furthest away points uh, on earth yeah um so you were in the hippie commune stuff then what what, where'd you go from there because you eventually ended up here in my house (laughs) (laughs) so i did my traveling um spent nearly a year away and then decided to come home and it's like okay cool let's go down the normal route find a partner um settle down have a family um get myself set up um I was definitely shot myself in both feet by doing the traveling, but then traveling also has its own benefits. Yeah. So, uh, less quantifiable ones. Yeah. So I had to kind of hit the ground running, get myself the car organized, get all the, the assets, the furniture, to find a place to live. Um, so it was kind of like building myself up from the start again. Yeah. Um, I, w- I was on that path. It's doing well. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I had a normal insurance job for a bank and career wise, I landed pretty much the job I wanted to stay at and I was set and saving to kind of, you know, achieve the elusive house deposit and partner. And uh, then I met Alice in Sydney. So we were on a um, uh, annual sort of like celebration at work and yeah, we're in a pub, uh, had a friend there who was way too drunk, which I was kind of chaperoning. I was just trying to like, hey, Sasha, keep it together. You know, 30 (laughs) seconds, we can get in the door. There's a sixth pub we've been turned away from. Like, just kind of take a couple breaths and then hold on and we'll make it past. Um, And eventually, yeah, we we managed to get into the only pub left open about two, three o'clock in the morning. And uh, yeah, just had fun, a couple drinks. And uh, Sasha started a very inappropriate conversation with no volume control. Okay. So it wasn't just a discussion between me and Sasha. It was Sasha, me, and the entire bar. <laughs> and uh, somehow got onto bondage <laughs> and how she uh, assumed that I would enjoy being tied up. Right. And so wanted to let the whole bar know that I was into uh, a little bit of light BDSM. Right. And uh, then that noise and the show Sasha was putting on kind of drew uh, Alice's attention. I see. And uh, Alice was behind me. I hadn't even clocked her okay. at all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then Sasha just kind of walked straight past me. And uh, the first introduction was, oh, hi, I'm Sasha. This is Matt. Um, this guy likes being tied up. Do you like being tied up? Oh, and that God. was the introduction. It wasn't like, hi, this is Matt. What's your name? <laughs> Nothing. It's just straight into it. Nice. Um, and Alice had a good sense of humor about it. Mm-hmm. And we ended up getting along. 
traded stories. I had my hike. She had her sailing because she's a sailor. Yep. And uh, yeah, we gave it a shot for two or three weeks, kind of played house, decided we wanted to do it for real. Because she's from the UK, isn't she? She's from the UK, yes. Um, she's not from far from here, is she? Like, as in uh, family. Tunbridge Wells. Yeah. yeah. So about two hours north. Yeah, which, you know, especially in England, it sounds like, to English people, that sounds like far, but to anyone else in the world, they're like, that's no distance at all. Yeah. Two hours to make there and back in a day. Yeah, exactly. Um, back home in Australia, that, you, it's a two-hour drive to the beach. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's not far at all. That's a day trip. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so met Alice, still have the intention of settling down, getting a house deposit, getting my life together. So I get this curveball. Um, yeah, it was pretty much the best date I'd been on ever. Uh, we got along really well. We both had interesting stories. We had kind of gone out to kind of experience the world and yeah. come back. And uh, she was she had done two years in Australia and she was doing her third year while studying. And so visa-wise, it was like, okay, if we're going to give this a proper shot, we have to go for the citizenship for her. And the Australian immigration laws are quite strong yes. compared to here in the UK. Yeah. Uh, so if, in order for us to take that path, Alice would have to spend two years without working where we'd have to live off my salary. Right. And uh, she's a very independent person and she's definitely not willing to do that. Of course. And then I was in a privileged position where um, I think 31 is the cutoff for your uh, work visa here in the UK. Okay. Um, and so I got to come across on a program where I had a work visa for two years, which I could then extend if I was in a relationship. Yeah. And so we registered our relationship in Australia, came across to the UK and uh, Alice being a sailor as well, can't really go anywhere else to set her life up. So that's how we ended up in Southampton. Right. Oh, well. Um, and then coming to the UK, we came across when COVID hit. Yeah. Um, so that was that was interesting to say the least. Mm. Um, everything's closed down. <laughs> but it was slightly less tight here than it was in Australia, though. So I feel like even though it was difficult for you having to move over here, the restrictions over here got loosened a lot quicker, didn't they? But, 100%. But yeah. then, you know, over in Australia, it was really quick and instant. And then it was like a break of a few months where there was nothing. And then suddenly on again. And it was quite on and off again. Whereas here, it was like, let's do nothing for the most of the time. And then suddenly, lightly implement a few laws. And do everything. Yeah. yeah. So so when I came across and I, I had booked my flights, we, we didn't have the blacklists or the restrictions on. We were speaking about it. Um, and I had booked my ticket months in advance. Yeah. Um, so then we blacklisted all countries that had cases of COVID mm -hmm. and we were shutting down the state once we would have four cases. Mm -hmm. So if four people had COVID, we shut down the state completely. Yeah. Um, and that's no travel. Uh, we did postcode lockdowns, which the UK did yeah, yeah. similar. Um, and then you weren't allowed to travel unless you were unemployed, um, bankrupt, like you weren't allowed to have savings. If yeah. you had savings, you had to spend it in a hotel to stay. Right. Um, and then once you had nothing, then you're allowed to leave the country. Okay. Um, so to qualify for approval to leave as planned, visas already paid for, everything's all organized. I had to terminate my lease without the approval to fly, make myself homeless, sell off all my stuff, um, get rid of all my money and my savings and everything. Wow. Um, and then present myself as someone in a financially vulnerable situation that would then, and again, you, you could have a moralistic problem with that, which I understand, but people are either accidentally in their situations or they're deliberately in their situations. This yeah. was an instance where I deliberately put myself in that situation. And there was one gentleman who was doing the approvals for flights and that approval would only be given to you in the airport once they validated all your documentation. Oh my God. So there's no, like you just had to commit to it a hundred percent. And I'm like, okay, there's only one or two times in your life where you're willing to like, just uproot your life, set fire to everything and just be like, <laughs> okay, cool. I'm hoping for the best here. Yeah. Um, and yeah, when I got to the airport, I got there six hours early. Um, the gentleman who does the approvals wasn't there. Didn't start his shift until an hour before my flight. Right. No one knew this. Oh, God. And so, I went around introducing myself to all the border force agents in the airport. And pretty much every hour on the hour as my watch would tick over, I'd go hassle the border force agents. Hey, I need my approval. And basically, everyone got the shits with me in the airport. <laughs> Just that, that stare for hours and hours upon end waiting for them to come up to me to give me some information. Yeah. And... Uh, just again, like clockwork, going up and saying, "Hey, you've not, you've not signed off. What do I need to do?" Oh, we don't know yet. Um, and then Canberra would do the pre-approvals, so I had to phone Canberra. Anyway, long story short, twenty minutes after the boarding of my flight, 
the gentleman came in to start his shift. Wow. And all he had to do with a purple pen was sign my form to say approved. That, that was the approval. It was a purple pen. And so here I've got couples next to me and people wanting to get on the same flight. They're in tears. Their life's over. They're not going to see their family. And I'm just trying to keep my composure. Um, and then obviously having Alice on the phone the other end, oh, did you get through? And I'm just like, hey, leave me alone. Um, I'll either get there or not. I'll let you know when I get there or not. Don't add to my stress, please. Um, but yeah, so I got my purple signature and I managed to get on the plane, luckily. And the the highlight actually was there was this couple um, that were from Europe somewhere and they were having a really traumatic time of it all. Like they, they were struggling with their paperwork and both of them were in tears the entire time. And then probably another half hour, 40 minutes after I had boarded the plane, they eventually got on as well. Right, right. So they got their approval too, which was quite nice. Oh, that's sweet. And then uh, coming to the UK, it was uh, it was almost like one of those apocalypse movies. <laughs> so I landed in the airport. No one's there. <laughs> Which airport was this? Do you remember? Um, Heathrow. Okay, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So landed in Heathrow. No security. No staff members for the airport. It is literally just us walking out of the plane, trying to stumble our way down it's to like baggage. Four a.m. or something. Uh, no, it was eleven a.m. Oh. So, you guys had gone into lockdown. Like, it was... Right, I see, I see. Yeah, and your trains were completely empty. There was no one on the train platform. Um, I could have pulled out my phone and nav- navigated, but I was just kind of looking around. Yeah. And the only two people I saw were two police officers. And there's a blacklist on Australians coming to the country. You're not allowed. My only approval to be in the UK is this photographed bit of paper with a purple pen with a gentleman's signature from Australia. And the UK don't know whose signature that is. So I'm a little hesitant and a little stressed still, even though I've been approved. It's not really an approval and it's not going to hold up. And so I was I was just terrified they were going to turn around and take me back to the airport and say, okay, you need to go home. Yeah. Um, my response would have been, I don't have a home to go for. Here's all my paperwork. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then I would have tried to convince them otherwise. Uh, but luckily enough, the police were super friendly. Um, they helped me to the train station. And yeah, again, I did not see anyone. It was just me on the train. Wow. After the passengers had gone, it was completely empty on the tube. And uh, yeah, the next person I saw was Alice in Tunbridge Wells, which was pretty cool. Wow. Um, and we had spent probably three months apart because she came across earlier. Mm. Um, so it was absolutely terrifying coming across because, yeah, the whole time it was up in the air. Yeah, you could have got there and she could have just been not interested. And then <laughs> yeah. you could have gone through all that. And then yeah. she's like, oh, by the way, have you met Tim? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, like a week when I got back. Like, I just hooked back up with Tim. Yeah, you remember Tim, don't you? What? Yeah, wow. Yeah, so that's that was insane. Really cool. And then I uh, lived with Alice's mum for a year, which is always fun. Uh, the first time you're living with your partner together in your own house, it's not your own house, it's her mother's house, mm-hmm. is a uh, very interesting dynamic to juggle. Oh, I can um, imagine. Even in a, any situation, which even like now, if either my mum or Megan's mum had to live with us for some reason, like we love our mums to pieces, but it would be difficult. It's just what it's just one of those dynamics that it just it becomes strange uh, when you add that kind of layer, and especially if you're in their house as well. Oh yeah, like, mate, yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's mental. But you came to the UK during COVID, the, the most exciting time in UK history. Yep, and then uh, and then you've been here since the country has been sort of limping its way forward. Yeah, my so, first ever since you my, came in, and then the country started to limp. It's just gone shit. It definitely shit, wasn't yep. Brexit and all that stuff before you came. It's definitely it was me booking that flight. Yeah, once yeah. I did that, COVID started. Yeah, everything, everything was fine. Came. Then. Yeah. yeah, but how was your experience sort of adjusting to UK life? Um, it was super easy, to be honest, because the, that first year of UK life was, it was just Alice and Sally. Yeah. Like, that was it. We were allowed out it's to very exercise. Very small percentage of the UK population. Yeah, so we're, <laughs> we're allowed to, out to exercise. So, like, apart from the local shops and the household and going for a run in an area I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, so... The UK, as far as I was concerned, existed in a five-mile radius of where I ran. And that was the only places I knew for the first year. Yeah, apart from um, the airport. <laughs> yeah, and the airport and the train line. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, very small world. Um, and then to try and turn around and go, okay, this is not... You, you, no one can sustain that. Like, yeah. it's, it's pretty rough to be locked in a house. Oh, yeah. And, like, even with your partners, like, you get a break from your partner with work mm. and you you... You get to spend time with them, but you also have your own freedoms. Yeah. And to get to know someone so well and spend so much time with them and to allow each other to have 
your own lives while being together under the same roof, but also that person being your only contact. Yeah. So, um, a lot, a lot to juggle. Uh, so our solution to that was, okay, while these lockdowns are happening, I think this was the second lockdown. Um, it was like, okay, now that there's some leniency, do we want to go do something like mm. actually experience something? And at this time, even though there was people doing interviews for jobs, no one was hiring because how do you train someone? This is before the work from home. Yeah, so yeah. work from home wasn't an option. Um, so we decided to go to Spain and Alice is a sailor. And then so to partake in that and show an interest as well as an experience because everyone loves sailing. Everyone yeah. wants to be on a boat. Unless they get seasick. Yes. <laughs> um, so we went to um, Gibraltar mm-hmm. and we did a sailing course and I got my commercial license. Nice. And then when we came back, we went into a second lockdown and our way of dealing with that was buying an old transit van and doing that up as like a, uh, a weekender mm-hmm. um, because the lockdown had an exemption for people who had vans. Yeah. So we could do the South Coast while adhering to all the restrictions while also only engaging with ourselves and the petrol pumps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> We could we could actually experience a bit of traveling, mm-hmm. um, and that's kind of that's, that's pretty much what my experience of the UK was for the first year there. Yeah, and then I got my job at Market Study, mm-hmm. which was back into the insurance, and they were the uh, one of the quickest companies to start hiring. No, it wouldn't have been my choice, but it was it, it was what was there. Yeah, and yeah. then from Market Study, get uh, from Market Study, then Gallagher, which is where you and me met. Woo! Yeah, and you've we've been working together for yeah about a year. Yeah, a year or so. That's a fun story. My story of life is nowhere near that exciting of moving around, doing all that crazy stuff. I've done a bit of traveling here and there, but not, you know, go to a ghost city airport and be yeah. like worried I'm going to be sent back to how many, like how many hours is it? Like 24 hours we have to do a stop. So it's like 28 hours usually. So if you, if you, you have a direct. layover and they do an extended layover, like layovers are Traditionally, my experience is like 6 to 12 to 18 hours. Yeah, yeah. Um, But I I reckon the standard commute from Australia to the UK, you'd be looking at 32 to 36 hours. Yeah. With a break in between. And you're not sleeping. No, I can't sleep on setup very well at all. I have to be absolutely exhausted to do that. Yeah. Um, But yeah, so it's a long way across the water and foreign country, different people. Yeah. Um, at least they all speak the same language like that's qu- quite easy like like from wherever like if you went to anywhere in Asia for example where not only is it you can't understand what they're saying but you look at the written down language and it's not even using the yeah. same even like you know you look at Russian language and that's Russia and Greece they use the same alphabet so you've got you could look at that and you probably wouldn't even get less than 0.01% of it because it's actually a different alphabet. But when you look at certain um, Asian cultures such as China or Korea or Japan and the the writing in their standard format is pictograms. I don't know if that's the word, right word for it, but it's like... I, I know what you mean. The yeah. little, And it's just like, and they symbolize certain things. And it's like, at least over here, it's like... Very few, like, you can speak the language, you get everything that's going on, there's just a weird few quirks. Like, what well, was there like one specific quirk of Britain that came out, um, like, when you first started interacting with the world post COVID? Um, it, it was more of my quirks than your guys' quirks. Okay. So, right. like, if I would say words or use terminology that people weren't familiar with, yeah, I would just get like dead silence as a response. Yeah. And when you experience that over and over again, you start to get self doubt. You're like, am I speaking English? Is, is the problem me? Or <laughs> we're, is we're it? We're trying to angl- like, anglophile you. Yeah, Should exactly. Turn you more English. Yeah, proper um, English. We kicked you out the. We kicked you and your ancestors <laughs> out of our country like what two hundred years ago. Yeah, and then we're letting you back in, but you have to then adhere to our rules. We don't want to know what you learned over there. No, in that backwater <laughs> world with kangaroos. Come back here, become like us. Yeah. Um. So it's just the normal things that people run into. So McDonald's is Macca's, service yeah. station, servo. Yeah, um, not had servo. Heard Macca's, not yeah, servo. Yeah. Um, and then obviously adding O's and A's. O's is and, a funny one. Yeah. When Australians have spoken to Goff about this a few times, of just adding O's, like when he said Doco for the first time, and I was like, what? And documentary, Doco. I was like, oh, I get it. But that makes sense. But sometimes you have words that are short and you make them longer by adding... The O. The, the O again onto it. So it was, I can't think of an example. You've probably got one, but like, what, just O's at the end. Do you know why it's O's? I, it, in the, theory. I, I'd say it's the rhythm in the way that you speak. So yeah. I've, I've heard people who try and nail down accents. I can't do accents for the life of me. Yeah. Um, they tend to speak in rhythms. So maybe the Australian accent has that rhythm. So they'll put fillers in to maintain the rhythm when they speak. Yeah. So when you get your um, single syllable words or like, 
your abbreviations yeah. and then you're adding an O and it just makes no sense. It's probably just for the sound of it. It's ironic because um, the Australians add vowels, whereas British people, especially when you go like more Northern or more uh, Scottish or even Irish, when you get certain, the, even Welsh, the, the different colloquial variants of, not colloquial, that makes it, that's down, that's downplaying the importance <laughs> of the language. These entire dialects are, are variations of the English language. A lot of them are actually taking away vowels and consonants. They replace, you know, apostrophes, obviously, is what Shakespeare did years ago. But, like, when you write phonetically how Scottish people, from, like, the point of view from, like, Irvin Welsh, uh, author of Trainspotting, things like that, the, the words get shorter. Yeah. So you guys add letters and we take them away. Yeah. That's quite funny. I don't know why. I suppose the, the rhythm, as you say, probably makes sense. But, like, the, the different language variants of things cracks me up and when there's certain sayings that don't make sense they're the, they're yeah. the funniest ones yeah um andy our boss at work with his yeah, I gilding even, the lily yeah gilding the lily I've it's like where's that, that come from yeah like mate why old, old time to speak <laughs> i've never heard gilding the lily yeah um so yeah you get those instances um they don't happen frequently enough for me to be able to recall them. No. But they happen, like, and they're so varied, but they're, they're singular as well, and they just kind of naturally occur, and it's like, hang on, yeah. wait. Um, but yeah, the biggest difference I've noticed uh, between Australia and the UK is the lifestyles, and right. I don't think that's a that's a culture thing. I think that's more of an environmental thing. Yeah. And that's like, in Australia, we have more land, less people. Um, people tend to have houses with backyards. They tend to have sheds. Uh, they tend to have a little bit more disposable income. Yeah. And so you'll find, like, my experience is that most Australians have interests and hobbies. Mm-hmm. Um, and then those interests and hobbies are normally linked with, like, physical things. So yeah. whether it's an action, a sport, um, building something, creating something. Uh, where here in the UK, people tend to have... You, you don't have the room to have a hobby. You, you, you don't have backyards. You don't have garages. You don't have sheds. You don't have land. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's, that's the main crux of it. And the houses as well being built like within two feet of each other. Yeah. If that, sometimes they're all just connected in one nice little row. Yeah. Um, and we, we are starting to do that back home in Australia as well. Like yeah. all the new developments are on top of each other. It's very similar. Um, and that's another thing too. Your housing market. like uh, So if you look at houses, you don't list the land size on yeah. the property. No. So, where in Australia, if you're buying a home, the yes, you need to know the, how many bedrooms, but the most equal, the most important thing is the footage. Like, you need to know how big your property is. Yeah, we only give the footage of the actual property in a sense of, like, the house itself, not the land. It's yeah. never mentioned anywhere. Yeah. So, they just go, oh, the gardens have got over X amount of square foot of space, but that could mean anything. It's yeah. ambiguous. Exactly. So, you can't you can't even choose, like, if you wanted to pursue that, mm. it, it's just so much friction to try and find a property like that. Yeah, it's what happens when you've had, like, thousands of years of people building <laughs> in the same areas, just oh, constantly. Oh, Whereas oh, in Australia, it's like... Brand new. It's like the thing with America, isn't it? Yeah. Everyone's got so much land because there've only been uh, people living there in the kind of modern way, you know, that aren't indigenous people. People were living there for, what, 200 odd years? If yeah. that. Whereas in England, it's been like, well, Shakespeare was 400 years ago and it was more civilized, a civilization before him. So yeah, wow. it's like double the, the, you, the longevity of America as a nation and Australia as a nation put together minus from us is when Shakespeare was about. And that's the other difference as well. Yeah. Your infrastructure yeah. lines are all still the same. Yeah. Where yeah, yeah. in Australia, we, we do have the old lines, mm. but because we're moving into new areas we and we know what the projected growth is, those lines are more established when they're first put down. Yeah. So we then don't run into those bottlenecks. And technology as well. Like, it, it's unheard of to find a house that's more than 150, 200 years old in Australia. Yeah. Where here, you'd easily have houses from the 17, 1800s oh, yeah. that are still there, heritage listed. Um, sort of homes. There's none of the things like that. Yeah, the, n- there's a pub in town, 1600s. Yeah. So. so none of that history is there in Australia. So I always find it difficult having those conversations about differences in culture because you think culture comes from the history and Australia doesn't have the history. Mm. Um, and we're also like, it's a weird one. We're not too far away from like, you know, we send all the convicts there to settle it, um, but we are far enough away that no one really associates with that anymore. It's more of just a running running joke oh yeah yeah type deal um but the history is just not there um what do they teach you in history class just world events yeah just like um it's kind of funny looking back at it and i still have no idea what they would teach you guys in history um <laughs> but our history class not was enough. like captain cook <laughs> oh what, the settlers of australia yeah, yeah. Right, and yeah. um all the different like villages um the, the queen's in- or oh, the king's involvement in yeah. settling Australia, certain generals it's having the their revolts and stuff. Yeah, exactly. So it was it was more Commonwealth, and because we're an island, so separated from everything else. 
Yeah, Australians really don't have a good history sort of education. Um, when you get into high school, you can do electives, mm. and that'd be the only way to get it. And that's we had modern history, which is like World War One, World War Two, um, and we had ancient history, uh, which is more like Egyptian times, two and a half thousand BC, or about Sparta, depending on your selectives Hmm. um that's pretty much just the extent of it Uh, that's another thing too like again i'm not sure in the uk um english language i imagine that literature would be a subject that's offered yes generally it's when i was at school so this was 14 years ago now but um it was the higher the top two classes in english language would then do English. They would try and cram all of English language, the GCSE, into the first year, and then the second year would be English literature. Okay. Always the other way around. But basically, we did one GCSE a year, which is the qualification instead of one over two years. So we did do English literature, but it was more higher ability. But I know a lot more kids' schools nowadays do mixed ability, so I don't know how applicable that would be. So, but when I was, yeah, we did literature. But that was more analyzing stuff as poetry. We did a bit of Shakespeare and stuff, but it gotcha. was more about analyzing language. Yeah, so in school we did like the standard Shakespeare stuff, but like yeah. um, we never really learned about writers. Um, our reading lists were more like little small novels and books that Mice weren't very. Sorry? Mice and Men, things like that? Uh, I'm trying to think. Like um, Harry Potter was really? part of our course. Okay, right. um, so we had to read a book and write an essay on Harry Potter, and I'm just trying to think back now. I can't believe it's been almost a decade since school. Um, it's over a decade. Yeah. <laughs> Almost. Yeah. Over for both Well of us. over, yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, I'm trying to think about the other books we did. Because ours was like, there was, of Mice and Men was the, the standard for us. Then obviously there was Shakespeare, but there wasn't good, interesting Shakespeare like Macbeth. It was the boring ones like uh, King Lear. Yeah. Which can offend a lot of my Shakespeare fan listeners, uh, but sorry. And so that was another thing too. So 2008 was my graduating year. So it would be 2006, 2007. Mm. And so in our English classes, instead of reading the novels and the books... Um, the syllabus allowed us to watch the films. Yeah, so we the had Engli- that as well. So the English teachers would show us the films, and then so we we don't get appreciation for the text. We don't do the essay writing, and um, being critical of the um, text as well or the film. <laughs> it's like what interpretations could you make rather than what is the actual interpretation of the film? Yeah, um, and that was kind of premise to learn. It's like how many different ways could you take this rather than try and find the actual value in it. Mm. Um, which, again, was something I struggled with because it's kind of like... Yeah. Well, I mean, that especially, like, I, I struggle with that kind of thing, language theory and, like, it's, it's a thing, as you say, like, because the film itself is an interpretation of... It's mainly the director's interpretation of a film. So mm. that in itself is an interpretation, but, like, with Shakespeare... Of an interpretation, which yeah, you're then interpreting. Yeah. Exactly. It's an interpretation's uh, exception. But from people I know who like Shakespeare, I'm not the biggest fan of Shakespeare's work necessarily... But I've heard from a lot of people when you see it performed, it's way better. And I remember in primary school seeing Macbeth performed, and that was fantastic. Not oh. by primary school kids, by actual uh, actors who came in. Uh, I assume they're actors. Maybe they're just random people. Who knows? Hey, I was like seven. But um, watching Macbeth was really cool, and seeing certain Shakespeare performed is great. But I just find that school, because it's trying to be one size fits all, it ends up just being, if you're even remotely above the average ability of that classroom, or if you have a non-neurotypical brain in any capacity which is now most people as they're realizing but like if you don't fit in these parameters i would just get so bored of everything because either in certain things like maths that i was naturally quite good at i would just be able to do it instantly and i'd be bored because everything would be going so slow for me but other stuff like english language they wouldn't try and make it sound interesting it was almost like a chore to force you to pay attention it's like yeah I know Shakespeare's boring too I don't want to hear it again can, but we'll get through it and it's like, rather than having enthusiasm yeah. in the subject and trying to like to show a Nothing genuine my interest teachers, by the way. my teachers were great it's just that's, that was the vibe I was going like science in school I couldn't stand and then I finished school and I'm like really interested by it that's cool um, my favourite teacher I, I, I couldn't even tell you his name I wish I remembered his <laughs> name he was um, our geography teacher yeah and that I had no interest in geography whatsoever but that became my favourite class nice yeah and uh, same for everyone and also our our course marks for that class everyone scored above 90% wow and like throughout all my schooling I'd never been put in an environment where that was the case yeah and because he and he was also like he had a personality he could he could contend with all the kids acting up and in fun humorous ways. Yeah, um, I remember he we had one kid who was a bit of a. 
he would he would look for ways to disrupt the class. Right. He'd he'd have underhanded insults, see what he could get away with testing. Yeah, testing the waters. Yeah. Um and that was our very first lesson of that year and I'll never forget it. Um the teacher came up and he got the blackboard marker and he walked up and he put a dot on the whiteboard. Oh sorry, blackboard marker, whiteboard marker, put a dot <laughs> on the whiteboard. Yeah. And he turned around and got the kid and he's like, Now listen, you've got some choices now. You can either leave the class, which I'm not having you back in this class again. Hmm. You can either go to the principal's office and we're not doing that. Like, basically, your parents are going to come in and we'll have a chat and you're going to get kicked out of the class. Hmm. Um, or you can stand up in front of the whiteboard. You're going to put your nose on that whiteboard for the next 20 minutes. If it moves from that spot, you will be going to dis- detention for four weeks. Hmm. And so now you have a choice. You've got the mouth. Can you back it up? Yeah. Are you going to take responsibility for it? And you're not going to disrupt my class. Like, he just made it abundantly clear. And uh, I could not believe it. Yeah, yeah. The kid got up, put his nose on the whiteboard. Wow. And uh, you could... We would all then engage with the teacher because you knew where the line was. Yeah. And so, we could have more fun. We could have more jokes. Uh, we could kind of push the barriers a little bit. But we all knew where the line was. Yeah. And just having that clear sort of experience, everyone paid more attention. It was more engaging. And uh, he was a stickler, man. Like, mm. even your notes in your notebook, if you didn't have the right color pen when you were transitioning <laughs> on your on your headings. Yeah. And you'd have to copy out his notes from the whiteboard as well. And if you were to do shorthand or anything like that, he would send the book back and you'd have to go do it again. Wow. So, like, super strict, but also one of the most rewarding classes. And he had a really playful, not really politically correct sort of personality. I can imagine and, making a kid do that with a whiteboard. Yeah, and he, he's just waiting for the kids to kind of contend with him just so he had the opportunity to kind of, like, show them who's boss and also engage with them at the same time. And when he would do that, he was always forgiving. Like, um, that kid, he made stand, uh, stand up with his nose on the whiteboard. He then gave him multiple invitations to kind of engage with the class and have fun and also allowed the kid's sense of humor too. It was pretty cool. Mm. And then you have other teachers where it's just screaming fits or just sending kids out and there's there's really no progress and the kids aren't receptive and it just kind of destroys the class because it just turns into chaos and then no one's getting a thing out of it yeah Um, with with megan uh, working in uh, schools now uh, she has informed me that that still goes on to a degree mm -hmm. there are some teachers obviously i'm not going to name any indication (laughs) of who they are but there are certain teachers who yeah just like shout or scream at the kids and can't get control and it just becomes for the kids who kind of are somewhat interested. It just kind of spoils the experience for them. Yeah. yeah. School school is such a weird thing as a concept. It makes, like, in civilized society, it makes a lot of sense when it, everything was kind of stripped back, I think, back several centuries ago. Because when there was only, you know, you basically do, you're a carpenter or you're maybe a, maybe a plumber going back two centuries, maybe, probably plumbing. Yeah, because it was a Romans kind of someone introduced that kind of concept, wasn't it? So, but still, it's like, you know, certain jobs and things, a lot of them were manual labor-y things. It, there was no tech, there was no technology, you know, a few hundred years ago, it wasn't even electricity. So a lot of the jobs that you were taught in school was just kind of reading, writing, vague communication, and then go off and do the job. And then as com- societies become more complicated and we've had to l- start learning, you know, trigonometry and advanced calculus for some unknown reason. As much as I like maths, I enjoy maths, okay, to clarify. And it is maths to you Americans who call it math. Um, do you guys call it math or maths? It's math. Oh, God. Yeah. You, you guys are so weird with your language because you... Like a lot of, we sent you over there, but you've picked up so much from America. I know geographically you're closer to America, so that's probably part of it is I imagine there was some degree of migration from yeah. America. I also think it's also the time at which we were settled and where we had the most of our growth. Yeah, so yeah, at the industrial, America. yeah, so as the industrial revolution took over, America bloomed and then Australia mimicked that in the same way. Yeah. So a lot of the cultural moments as well as the way the American family, um, it's kind of, all being imported into Australia mm. because that yielded the best results at the time. And so we've just kind of like mimicked that. And so a lot of Australians, we, we are more Americanized than some Americans, depending on which parts of America you go to. Yeah. Um, you're definitely more Americanized than the English are yeah. as well, which is a weird one. Because I think, I don't think we perceive you as that. It's a weird one because the three, I know Canada is a part of this, but if I just strip it back and make it really how a lot of English people view it is, there's the three main English countries or nations, and it's America, England, and Australia. You know, yeah. they're the three. I know obviously there's New Zealand, there's lots of other English-speaking places, but those are the three. And it's weird because England, I think we feel like we're in the middle because I think we feel like we're civilized, in equity, even though we're not, but we feel like we are, and that Americans are like super extra and 100% all the time, often to 
too much. And then Australians are more kind of just chilled out and even perceived as potentially lazy and that kind of they're all chill you know Americans are really 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 intense and uh, Australians are super chill we're kind of in the middle we're kind of prim and proper and it's like none of those things are actually necessarily accurate I think that's a weird also, thing I think that's also a result of how quickly Australia's had to develop compared yeah. to all other countries yeah so that's probably why it's like we don't historically you haven't had time to get into an argument or have drama yeah and because we're such like a growing nation and most people were immigrants place. yeah so you can live in the donut of australia and there's like spiders and snakes and all kinds of, and box jellyfish that yeah. want to kill you crocodiles and sharks and all sorts and, yeah you know you've you've got freshwater um sharks that can also swim out to the salt water yeah. as well so you just like you'll see a shark in a river and you'll be like what what <laughs> how'd you get here um river shark but yes uh what was i saying well, um, it was uh, so the, the difference is where Australia is perceived as maybe lazy because you're such a young nation as well. Yeah, um, I think it's just because we we can't be bothered, and that comes across as laziness. I wonder if the heat doesn't help that, like the, the heat of the um, because you're in such a hotter climate. I mean, Australia is about the same size as the USA, interestingly enough, but where you're kind of a donor and. America, apart from there's like obviously Nevada desert and there's little places, but generally all of the USA is inhabitable. So it's like them making progress is easier because of the sheer uh, amount of land there is to use to fertilize the amount of people that were there, the the surrounding nations that, you know, you kind of have this thing, everyone from Europe was kind of going over there. Whereas to get to Australia was so much more difficult. It was going to, here's a small amount of people with less attention to you, which is going to leave you to it and you're all convicts by. Whereas America was like, let's push all that. It's the land of opportunity. We all kind of focus on that, where you guys are kind of in the corner, like slowly building. And they were like, oh yeah, they're quite lazy because they haven't caught up with the rest of us. Like, because all your efforts have been going into America. Yeah. And then wars. Yeah. Um, Lots of wars. That's another thing too. I think Australian committed like a fair... We had, um, so Australia, American, uh, so Australia forces, so like army, navy, things like that, the requirement to get in was that you had to be six foot. <laughs> wow. And this is back the then. The original Tinder girl bio. Yeah, exactly. The original. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, pretty much like, you know, all your A class men are the people who are in the armies. So then, um, we got a reputation yeah. when it comes to other countries and our armed forces, mm. um, because we were considered giants compared to everyone else. I, don't, I have no <laughs> idea what the average age was back then. Uh, sorry, the average height for a man back then. I kind of, I wonder if that affected the gene pool in any way. That's, that's the point. Yeah. It oh. exactly did. So as a result of World War One, World War Two, or I think World War Two, we had the bigger involvement. I don't know if we had much in World War One. Um, there were so many fatalities and we sent so many forces across that the average height of people in Australia had dropped by a couple of inches. <laughs> like it, it wasn't a small portion. It was a considerable amount. Yeah. And so that's why now, um, in Europe, European countries, um, you guys have a taller population than Australians. Oh, wow. Because of the losses we had. And it's wow. quite cool when you look through history and stuff like that. Um, so if there was the war in Vietnam, mm. um, the same with like little in, I want to say insurgents. That's not the right word. The indigenous people? Um, no, no, no. Uh, so missions we would run into Japan. Oh, so right. they'd, um, they'd encounter the Australian forces and then you've got these, Asian people who are quite shorter and then you've got these tall, white, pale <laughs> six foot guys that everyone are like, holy shit, they're giants. Yeah. Little do they know that they've got tr- trench foot, they're losing their toes, they can't survive the heat, the humidity is <laughs> killing them. Um, but the uh, the intimidation, I suppose, is there. Um, mm. But I, I think that's why we had so much involvement with all that sort of stuff. Wow. And then obviously it's something to be proud of if you've got a good armed force and there's some stories and you're getting some yeah. clout. Yeah, I mean, that's what I think one of the reasons that Britain still clings to the great part is because we did go around and colonize lots of the world and then we just kind of steadily gave up. Which is mind blowing to consider how small the UK is yeah. and the fact that you guys had so much influence. And we still have, it. I think, the world's greatest navy as well. Yeah. But I think by quite a lot, but obviously we're an island. So it's like the only way we can even get anywhere is in boats. Yeah. So I think that's how it kind of started, you know, before technology was advanced enough for flight or anything like that. It was like, well, the best way is basically either on land or on ocean and you literally can't get to England mm. unless you go across the ocean yeah. so if we become the best ocean nation around yes, you sir. can't touch us so whenever there were big conflicts going on you'd think that we'd win everything but you look at the history of Britain we were invaded and conquered constantly yeah. by the uh, Saxons by the Romans by the reason like, like so much of our language and both like in Scotland and Ireland and Wales why there's so many different dialects why there's so many the description I always use which I've, I didn't come up with this which is 
English language is basically sneaking around in a crowded area full of Europeans and just picking out little bits and pieces like breadcrumbs out of everyone's pockets and kind of smushing it all together and eating it. That thing that you're eating, that weird Frankenstein bread that I'm imagining that would be horrendous and stale, that's the English language. There's no rules make any sense. Yeah. None, none of it's consistent with itself. And it's just that thing where I think we were conquered so many times. Even though modern sort of at a point we were then no we're going to go conquer everyone else we've been conquered by everyone now we're the ultimate conquerors and then we went on and were quite successful for a little while and then I think we lost to America and uh, then from there it just kind of well, we can't, it can't, yeah. we can't be bothered anymore yeah it's, it's kind of like you guys got beat down so many times learn all those lessons and then went okay revenge gonna yep. go get it everywhere conquer every country you possibly can yep. and then yeah as you said America comes in Done. Done. And then we were like, we don't really need to conquer anymore. But I still like how you guys still hold on to it. Like I learned since being here in the UK the past two years. um, It's still true today, the saying that the sun never sets on the Commonwealth. So like throughout the horizon, if you follow it around, there's a Commonwealth country Mm. across the globe. Oh, wow. Um, And so all the Commonwealth countries still pay a queen's tax. Mm -hmm. It's more of just a... uh, like a token thing, or was yeah, it? Yeah, like a token. Like a nod. Thank you for vaguely saving our nation, even though the atrocities you've caused. But. Yeah. Um, and then, so in Australia, that's another thing too. Uh, every, say, 10 years or so, or 12 years, every four terms, um, there tends to be a discussion about seeking independence from the Commonwealth. Yeah. Um, but also being part of the Commonwealth gives you so many more benefits as well. Um so it's just kind of like a toss-up. So we really don't control Australia anymore, apart from there's a few little threads, isn't there? Like, there's a yeah. couple of weird quirks, but as, as a general nation and how the majority of things run, we don't really touch it enough. So it's kind of like, well, you kind of are in control to a degree, and if you know, World War Three happened, you'd probably drag us in. But, like... Um. Yeah, the UK's intervened in Australia, I think, on two or three occasions. Yeah, which isn't so that when, much. When they first settled it, there was a general who was just like, no, I'm, I've done all the work, I'm suffering, screw you, this is going to be my country. Yeah. And so he kind of set his own rule of law in. And then she's, uh, you guys sent your armed forces in to overturn the general, reestablish dominance and be like, okay, cool, you guys, <laughs> you know, you're a bunch of criminals, we sent you here to like, suffer, <laughs> we're not expecting you to build up, go back, <laughs> behave, take your punishment, take your licks. Yeah. And then um, I think, I, I don't know when it was, I, I want to say it was probably like in the, somewhere between the 50s and the 90s, mm. in that 40 year period, we had a prime minister and so... The queen has the ability, so she has to sign off on every legislation. So if we want to impose the law, we then have to file all the paperwork, send it over to um, you guys, and then yep. get you guys to sign it, and it comes back, and then it's ratified, and that becomes it's part of our law. Assumedly, British never vetoed. Yeah, pretty much. Um, and then she, well, the royal family also has, or whoever's the... Prime Minister? Queen or king, the... Oh, the monarch. The, the whoever's the leader yeah, of monarch. the royal family, the that, monarch. That would be it, yeah. Um, yeah, they also have the power to overthrow whoever's the sitting prime minister in Australia. Yeah, that's and cool. uh, yeah, that, they've used that power once. Oh wow. Yeah, I, I can't remember who it was against, but yeah, we had a prime minister that they pretty much sent him a letter to say, "Nope, sorry, you're fired. <laughs> Run another vote." I'm not happy with the way you're running the country. I'd be so interested. Like, I'd love to be able to see... I know there's sci-fi that is kind of dabbled in these sort of ways, but, you know, I'm lazy and I haven't read every sci-fi novel. Um, But, like, I'd love to experience or see a crystal ball, maybe a VR experience. Just go through and see what life would be like if the UK had never gone out and started conquering everyone. Like, how different things would be, because America would probably speak French, because there was the debate when we went over there, it was between French, Spanish, and English, that I think the shortlist was French and English. And obviously, that's why in Canada, there's French Canadians. Yeah. So, the majority of America would actually be French. So, therefore, the majority of the world's media output will probably be French. So, I wonder if the French language would have overtaken the English language as... Because although uh, Chinese Mandarin is the most spoken by individuals... England is English is the second or third language most commonly in the in the world. The most amount of places that have a portion of people speaking uh, English fluently. So and Spanish is like third, I think. Yeah. Um, so it's like when you have and obviously so much media is in English and and, and like American culture and obviously Australian things as well. So like and would Australia obviously wouldn't be what it is. There'd be the indigenous folk that live there, but I don't know if there are enough of them to have built up enough as a population size and how that would be in nowadays if no one had invaded and tried to take over which assumedly some people would have yeah so uh, people keep crediting um, uh, Captain Cook as the person who found Australia and established the colony 
Um, there's like historical maps where people have documented coming to Australia four or five separate occasions over hundreds of years prior. Yeah. So um, if if that was the theme or the consistency, I imagine there would be some other country that would have found Australia and settled it. And I honestly think it would happen the same way. Yeah. Um, the indigenous people would be pushed out. Like I mean, that's same as in America. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah, globally, that's pretty that's much everywhere. You, well, yeah, that's what you know, colonial uh, colonization. It's just like if there's some people who don't know anything outside of their world they're generally peaceful folk and then like millions of people run in with like guns or sharper sticks there's not really much you can do unfortunately no it's just kind of like oh okay this is your home uh, we have better use for your home we can get more out of it and that's for your benefit so yeah. let's go take and, it and we're more important than you so goodbye yes yeah. and it's like that's that's unfortunately the way of the world with animals and with humans yeah um, yeah it's, it's a weird thing like also I wonder how like India and like Asia would perceive England differently in the Western world because it's weird because we haven't got like a through line to India. If you look at where we colonize, it's not just we colonize everywhere from the UK to India. We did a few dots, but like India's kind of nothing around it. We yeah. just kind of leapfrogged to Across. India. Yeah. And like, we're taking this place. And I know there's a reasoning why there's a whole uh, deep history of uh, India's relationship with England as well as Pakistan and things like that. And one of the funny things with the English school system, which I find hilarious, is I remember being taught about Gandhi in uh, secondary school. So I must have been 11 or 12, I think, um, before GCSE or formal qualification stuff. And so there's a few lessons on Gandhi. I think we watched part of the movie. And they were saying how good Gandhi was as a person. But they don't really tell you why. And then you look into it, it's like, oh, he was fighting the oppressors. It's like, oh, that's great. You know, we were like fighting oppression, you know, damn those fascists. World War Two. that's the thing that English people love uh, holding on to. Um, and then it's like, okay, well, who was he fighting? It's like, oh, us. So, oh, I'm sorry. So in school, you teach people that Gandhi is a good person, even though, I mean, you know, he did do some dodgy things. But um, as a whole, as a, as a political figure, he was a positive force for India. And you go, okay, but we were the bad guys there. But they don't really delve into all the bad stuff we did. They were no. just like, oh, but Gandhi was great, wasn't he? Because of us, we, you know, we caused Gandhi. So Gandhi wouldn't be about it for us. Like, yeah, but you literally caused genocide. It's like, oh, don't worry about all the, yeah. all the genocide England's caused. Don't so worry don't, about all that. Don't take responsibility for the wrongdoings, but yeah. celebrate the victors. Yeah, it's like, like, oh, I destroyed like, these, tw- these 20 huge buildings. And what did you get out of it? This nice little diamond. It's like this, like this diamond. It's great. And it's like, but what about all that? No, no, don't just focus on this tiny little thing. Yeah. So yeah, the, the history, the history of Australia is interesting because I know so little about it. Yeah. So little. Well, there's not much to know. Like it's, well, it's 200 years. That's it. No, no. But you think about America, like the amount of civil wars they had and the amount of involvement they had with things as well. Like America has a rich history. Yeah. You know, especially with the involvement of like the slave trade and things like that. Like. And also because America, because the United States is connected with Canada, which hasn't really been in the, the dramatic news, but more the South, uh, Southern American states and things, there's obviously a lot of conflicts between those, you know, the people there. And obviously a lot of people down there speak different languages to other nations. So there's a whole amount of tension in different ways to the whole of the North and South America. Which makes an amazing story, which is why everyone knows so much about American history. Yeah. Um, but you move to Australia, there's just no story there. <laughs> so people don't know. It's, it's 200 years. It's like you even have like, you go, oh my God, you've got like the, the most dangerous uh, wildlife out there. It's like, yeah, but they don't really kill anyone because we've just got all the anti-venom. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, it may be the most, one of the most dangerous places on earth on paper, but you're more likely to die from a spider bite in the UK than in America, in Australia. Australia, yeah. Because yeah. all of the dangerous spiders, you've got the antivenom. Whereas if one of the false widows over here bites you and you have a bad reaction, we don't, there's not, there is a degree of antivenom over here, but it's mainly for, you know, like adders and things like that, snakes that are indigenous. Yeah. And, and that's kind of like the funny thing with the takeaways from Australia. So, like, the, I think the brown snake's one of the top two or three snakes for most venomous, most poisonous. They're also one of the most common snakes in Australia. <laughs> and no one thinks anything of them. Mm. And the reason is because even though they've got like a, a really strong venom, small amount, can kill you pretty much instantly, apparently their jaws, their fangs are so thin. That uh, if you're just wearing like cotton shirt, chances are they'll grab the shirt and not actually get pierced your skin. Oh wow! Um, so there's just not many fatalities. Mm-hmm. And then um, most of the other venomous snakes are just heart attack, I guess. Yeah. Panic, like whatever sort of venom that they ingest. The one that always freaks me out is the white-tailed spider. Apparently, that's like a flesh dissolving and rotting. It causes necrosis when they bite you. Yeah. And they have to actually cut out chunks of your skin when yeah, you get bitten. Just, it, it decays, doesn't it? Yeah. Because there's a, there's a wasp that stings and it turns, and I think a certain snake, where it turns your, it clots your blood so much, your blood becomes like jelly. Yeah. So all of it just literally, oh. all your veins and everything just block themselves up and the, all your organs just shut down because all your blood becomes 
no longer liquid. It's like, oh, that's yeah. horrendous. Couldn't do that. Um, but it's like with, with um, spiders, I remember a, a while ago, so the statistic may be outdated, but it was something like no one in Australia had died solely from a spider bite since the 70s or 80s. Yeah. Shit, apart from the most common way to die in Australia via a spider is when, if you're driving and you pull down the sun wiser uh, thing often spiders hide there yeah. and fall on people while driving and that causes them to crash and that kills more people than spider spiders themselves yeah, which I is insane that. to me that's such a cool little yeah. it's like vending machines kill more people a year than sharks do and things yeah. like that and, and that's another thing too so you do experience spiders quite a lot they're around they're prevalent um, we have a lot of uh, non-venomous spiders as well that are around you garden spiders the huntsmen jumping spiders aren't venomous are they sorry the jumping spiders yeah no the huntsmen's yeah. Oh, yeah, um, yeah so they're they're one of the fast. They are the fastest reflex spiders. Mm. Um, so there's no way you can catch them because yeah. they're just going to outstep you every time. Yeah. Um, so you, they make great YouTube videos where people are trying to catch them with an ice cream container or a bucket. There's no way you're getting that bucket over the spider. He's going to see you coming and he'll be out of there before you know it. If not, he'll jump on you. Um, <laughs> but huntsmen's they they move around a lot. Um, they like cool environments, so they'll tend to come inside your house. Uh, they can get quite large. They can be as big as your hand, mm. um, like the span from leg to leg. Yeah. Um, and yeah, motorcycle helmet, motorcycle boots, and they can flatten themselves out. So they'll, they'll sit between panels. So occasionally you'll be driving and your review mirror, you'll be looking at the cars behind you. And then suddenly you'll see like this little brown sliver on the side. And then he'll come out with a couple legs and you're like, shit, there's a spider there. You, you don't know what to do in those situations. How do you get him out? Like yeah. you, you haven't got a hose on you. And if, if you're wet him, you're just going to piss him off. And you don't really know what type of spider it is until he comes out. Yeah. Uh, the worst experience I've had was uh, I had a huntsman inside my helmet oh, on my motorcycle helmet. Oh, my God. And I had put my helmet on and the helmet has a, a an insert in the top where there's a visor, yeah, like yeah. sunny sunglasses that come down. Sunnies. <laughs> sunglasses that come down. Um, and the spider was there. So, he was fine. He was happy. I was happy. I was on my way to work. And then sunrise has come up and it's getting a bit... Blurry or glary. Oh, Hit the visor button. Visor comes down. Suddenly I feel this like pattering of spider feet across my oh, cheek. God. And he doesn't want to leave. Like I'm, I'm doing 60 kilometers or what's that? Like 40 miles an hour on a motorcycle. He doesn't want to leave. He doesn't want to get thrown out. He's going to be looking for somewhere to kind of hide again. Oh God, no. And it's like, what do you do? You can't do anything. So you have to like literally self-control. Say, okay, there's a spider on my face. There's a spider on my face. Find a place to pull over. Don't get run over. Don't fall off my fucking bike. This is, this is going to... Yeah. So I can definitely understand how people would crash and die. And I've only had that experience once. Thank God. And Did you just stop this other way? Good there. Kind of shake it. It was all right. Well, see, the thing is you can't take your helmet off quickly. Like now they've got these little plastic clips, but like 10 years ago they had D-rings. Right. So you'd have to feed your strap through to get it off. And so you're pretty much slapping yourself in the face, trying to get it off, like whacking. Um, and everyone knows what's going on too. You pull over the side of the road, jump out of your car screaming and then you've got your arms wailing all about trying to swat shit away. Everyone's having a good time but you. Yeah. <laughs> it's either a, bu- it's a bug in your suit. That's normally it, like a wasp or something or yeah. a spider. Yeah. Um, and then snakes is another thing too. Like, um, th- so we dogs is the issue, isn't it? Dog, yeah. Quite a few dogs and animals get killed by snakes and indigenous yeah. um, bugs or insects. Yeah, so red belly black snakes and the brown snakes, it, the dogs will tend to antagonize the snakes, which is why they get bitten. Um, snakes don't attack dogs, it's the other way around. Yeah. Um, but yeah, during the summer, we used to get snakes that come in the garage, the dogs barking for like a week straight, everyone's getting pissed off. And then so I'll never forget dad getting up, he's like, where's my shovel? <laughs> I need the square shovel. And he'd go out there with his boots on and be kicking the stuff in the garage around looking for the snake and then chop his head off with the shovel, put him in a bag, and then that would be done and the dog would be happy again. Wow. And so that was kind of like a, a yearly occurrence every summer. Right. Um, and he'd get like maybe three or four throughout the season. Wow. And this isn't like anywhere out west, like where there's farms and rural areas. This is like suburbs. Hmm. So some, somehow there's enough like mice and small rodents that they're living and yeah they're everywhere yeah um makes sense yeah yeah i want to ask as well because we've been checking for about an hour and um there's only one real area i've not touched upon with well it's kind of two but somewhat twofold is food 
And that's the end of the podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. As always, my friends, as I said in the intro, part two will be out next week, but it's going to be under the episode 203, because as I said, it's going to be basically a different conversation with the same person in the same recording, but we're talking about his three-month-long hike in the USA, and we also talk about differences in food a little bit, hitchhiking, and his new business, Bust Builders. So all the details are in the description, as per usual. Obviously, please follow me on social media at Genuine Chit Chat on Instagram, Twitter, and on Facebook, as well as on TikTok as well. You can also subscribe to my YouTube channel, which has video versions of the majority of conversations that I have. And in addition to that, there's all my Star Wars Comics and Canon episodes. And there's a lot of collaboration things that I do that are also on there. Some of them are in playlists, but some of them are actually uploaded to my YouTube channel. Please try and subscribe if you are listening to this right now, because I'm just trying to get my subscribers up here. Another push for all the subscribers, but thank you to everyone who has subscribed. Now I want to note here, if you want to get some bonus content, obviously you can subscribe to my Patreon. Also, you can donate to my coffee and you'll get episodes of Afterthoughts that are exclusively behind a paywall, which is primarily episodes I record with Megan, my fiance. But if you want to get a little taste of that, there are a couple of free episodes floating around. But if you want to get a specific episode that you really want, but you don't want to have to contribute financially for any reason at all, then all you need to do is leave a rating on Spotify or a review on Apple Podcasts or Good Pods or Audible, screenshot it, send it to me either on social media or on my email, genuinechitchat at outlook.com, and then I will send you a free episode of Afterthoughts of your choosing. So please consider doing that if you want just a bit more content for myself. And then obviously, please follow me in all the usual places. You can also subscribe to the Pop Culture Collective newsletter where you get a weekly update on what I'm up to as well as loads of other incredible creators and it's a great way to keep up to date with stuff without having to follow loads of people on social media. Aside from that, obviously, please go to Matt's Bust Builders Instagram or the Etsy store. Please just follow it or like it or any of those things just to kind of get a little bit more buzz around it. And if some of the busts that he's selling intrigue you, please consider paying for them. At the moment of recording this, there is a 50% off sale and I myself am going to be grabbing a few as well when he releases the next batch of them. But please consider going there. He's got some really cool stuff and he's a really nice guy, as you probably heard in this conversation. But that's going to be enough from me, my friends. Just thank you as always for listening. Please check out all the other various guest spots I've been doing, including Rebels Reviewed, appearing on Star Wars Timeline, doing comics on trial, and there are more to come. But friends, I appreciate each and every one of you listening, especially to the end. Please remember to follow me on social media, rate and review, all that usual jazz, and I'll talk to you next week with part two of my conversation with Matt. You have just experienced host, creator, everything else of genuine chit-chat, and also the host and creator of Star Wars Comics and Canon, found on the Comics in Motion podcast, Mike Burton.